Praise the Lord. Let's uh, let the children go out. We're going to just go into today's Bible teaching. And uh, I'll start straight away, guys, if we can get that first visual on. Thank you very much. So the thing the Lord laid on my heart today is looking at the evidences for the resurrection. I want to ask the question, the key question today is, did the resurrection really happen? It's a valid question, right? Yeah? When the baptismal candidates came to my office for their baptismal class this week, I asked them this question, what is the gospel? Now, how would you answer that? Somebody said, what is the gospel? How would you articulate what the gospel is. Just have a think about that in your own head. The candidates did really well, actually. At the heart of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without it, the rest of it would be meaningless. If Christ had merely died, he would have been a great martyr, nothing more. The fact that he rose from the dead changes everything. Pastor Adrian Rogers said this about the resurrection. The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith, without it, there would be no Christianity. This is the very point on which Christianity lives or dies. So if you want to destroy Christianity, here's one point, just try and disprove the resurrection. Or better still, from a more positive angle, look and see whether the claims about the resurrection are provable. You'll see from this talk that there are many people who were once atheists, but now having examined the evidence, not the experience, though that is part of it, but the evidence, they became Christians. C.S. Lewis would be one of those examples. This is the point at which Christianity lives or dies. Let me present a few evidences for the resurrection today. Such a study has led many great people to convert from their atheism to full-blown Christian faith. Lee Strobel wrote some great books. He was an investigative journalist, very bright man, very well-paid man. Um, he, he was editor, I think, of the Houston Herald and other things. He was a great, great mind, great brain, great salary, paying this great guy. And his wife became a Christian, and he wanted to just check out this newfound faith and see whether, it was point, whether there was any point to building a life on it. Lee Strobel wrote this. In short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had been an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical thing that I could possibly do, the best and most logical step. Do you want another one? You're going to get one anyway. Sir Lionel Lucker, who was the Queen's lawyer, Queen Elizabeth II's lawyer, Guinness Book of World Records presents him as the most successful attorney in world history, had the most murder acquittals, was a brilliant mind. She charged him with examining the facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he said this, starting the journey as an atheist and getting to the end of examining the evidence which he'd done for the whole of his life in order to get to the truth. He said, I can say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. There is so much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead inside and outside the Bible, and the scope of this talk doesn't allow me to unpack it. In fact, a week's lectures from experts would not allow them to unpack this. It wouldn't be just opinion of, of great minds. It would be concrete evidence. But when we look to the question with the, with the baptismal class, what is the gospel, we turn to this scripture I'm about to read to you today. And that is the scope of this talk today. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. In it, there are a number of points that I want to draw from the reading of the, those 11 verses. Can we just have the next slide? And these are, number one, the experience of the Corinthians' salvation was testimony to them that Jesus rose from the dead. They'd experienced the risen Christ themselves. Number two, the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever existed, the prophecies were so clear and detailed that you couldn't possibly fulfill them by trying it. I watched The Passion of the Christ last night. Again, I've not watched it for many years, Mel Gibson's film. And at the start of that movie, it has the quote from Isaiah, he was bruised for our iniquities, he was crushed for our sins, but punishment for our peace was upon him. And then it says at the bottom, 700 BC. Now, Isaiah was so explicit in the way that Jesus our Lord would suffer, but the Old Testament is full of scripture prophetic pointing to the killing of the Messiah, the burial of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah. We'll come to that ever so briefly in the middle of this study, but the Old Testament scriptures confirm that eyewitnesses in a good court of law, you need eyewitnesses. There were hundreds and hundreds who saw the risen Christ in a period of about 40 days. And you'll find in this study that most of them are still alive at the writing of this letter. A quick way to disprove Christianity would be to go and check with those people that are name by name. It's one of many proofs that are concrete. Within the Bible, there are many proofs outside of the Bible too. Let me read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, oh, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, i.e. they've died. Not too reliable a witness, now they've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, i.e. the gospel. This is what you believed, i.e. the gospel. In the Apostle Paul's day, there used to be a motto that hung in the city of Athens that read like this. 
Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. That was the belief of the Greek philosophers of Paul's day in the time when he was writing to these Corinthian believers. Indeed, there was a Jewish sect called the Sadducees, and people often cheesily joke that this is why they were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. If you remember when the Apostle Paul was in the Greek city of Athens, he preached on the resurrection for that reason. In chapter 17, verse 32, we read that some mocked him. Strange new teaching. But others said, we will hear you again on this matter. That was the measure of his breakthrough there. Because most of the Greeks believed what their philosophers taught. And this is it. That the body was a prison to the human being. There's something called dualism that they believed in Greek thought. Spirit and body were disconnected. It didn't matter what you did in your body because the spirit was what mattered, some of the beliefs. That the body was a prison to the human being, that the human spirit was like a bird caught up in a cage and therefore death could only be seen as the release of that bird into paradise. They weren't sure what that was, but one thing we do know is that when we look into the Corinthian church, the influence of the Greek philosophies was beginning to be seen. There was an evolving skeptical attitude towards the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Now, as we read this passage, we have to read between lines a little to think that probably there were false teachers coming to infect the Corinthian church with this idea that people do not rise from the dead bodily in a day yet to be. Now, let's be clear here, church. If Christ did not come back to life, and I'll say this many different ways in, in this teaching, there is no salvation from sin. There is no eternal life for any of us to look forward to if Christ was not raised. Now what I do want to say before we go any further is I believe the Corinthians did believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem they had is the culture was infecting their thinking that they didn't see how that meant that they too could rise from the dead. Now here's the point of hope for you this morning. Because Christ was raised, you too can be raised. Now for many of us, we take these ideas for granted. There may be some people in this room who don't yet believe those things, but the truth remains, for either side of the fence, that is an incredible thought. Whether you're Freddie Mercury or Seal or whoever sung about living forever, I'm sorry, Freddie, but I want to live forever. Death is screwy, I like life, and I'm sure I wasn't built to pass over. I believe in the resurrection of human beings as Jesus was resurrected. One, one famous Bible teacher and scholars put the importance of the resurrection down to this fact. Just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would matter much. See, this is it. Without this, why are we here? We need to know this is true. The resurrection is a central truth to the Christian gospel. Now, we read it in Jesus' accounts that Jesus made it central, and his own claims to a future resurrection were front and center. He made it clear in the gospel accounts that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and the chief priests. I saw that 
graphically portrayed in Mel Gibson's Passion movie. And be killed was Jesus' prediction, and after three days, rise again. He also said at the tomb of his friend Lazarus in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall be live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus not only told, talked about his own resurrection, he associated it with belief in him for you and for me. Note please also in passing that the first two sermons of Pentecost focus entirely or centrally on the subject of the resurrection in Acts 2 and Acts 3. It was this intrinsic truth of the resurrection that Jesus rose from the grave that made men, women, boys and girls spread the gospel of Jesus in almost a couple of years to the end of the known empire. Just a few years to take it to the end of the known world and beyond. There has to be an engine in the car that's propelling them so strongly to make that sort of missional advance, to be willing to die, to be crucified themselves, thinking of Peter and others, to be fed to lions, to be made torches at garden parties in Roman uh, parties and burnt there, to be put into the arena. They, they were willing to die for a delusion. No, this is people who had encountered the effect of the risen Lord Jesus in their life. The truth of the resurrection is intrinsic, vital, and fundamental to everything that we believe as Christians. We would have to say our faith stands or falls again. I said it before, stands or falls upon this truth. And that's why Satan, throughout church history, has sought to attack this doctrine because Satan knows that this doctrine is the foundation stone of everything that Christ claimed and everything that Christians believe. If there was no resurrection, there is no life-giving power. If there is no resurrection, there is no power in the gospel to change a person's life. If Christ was not raised from the dead, there is no divinity in his nature. If Christ did not come back to life, there is no salvation from sin. There is no eternal life for any of us to look forward to. Here's one very clear statement too. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the apostle says it himself in verse 19 of the passage that we've just read the first 11 verses of. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of people to be most pitied. Go and play golf on a Sunday. Go shopping, do something else. Go and enjoy the sunshine. If Christ has not been raised, stop wasting your life. But thanks be to God, Christ indeed has been raised with Paul. Paul's comment in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised, which is why we are here. And the implication of that is that people cannot receive salvation that was procured by his death and resurrection if we don't believe this message. You cannot be a Christian and you, you cannot be a Christian not believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So what does Paul do? What does, so what Paul does for these Corinthians in our passage that read the first 11 verses is to convince them of the evidence. He's trying to bolster their faith in order to cause them to believe in their own subsequent resurrection, which, just to bring it grounded, that's a great message. Who wants to live forever, Freddie Mercury? Yes, please. Yes, please. In a paradise? Yes, please. If this is real, this is the best news you've ever heard. 
It's the most life-changing message you'll ever hear from any lips, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul list as his evidence in this courtroom moment? Number one, their experience of salvation through the gospel. Number two, the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. Number three, the eyewitnesses. Number four, the conclusiveness of the common message. Let's look at those as quickly as we can, knowing the time is what it is. First piece of evidence which Paul tells us in verses one and two was their own experience of salvation through the gospel. Let's read it again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, when you the one which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Paul, church, is telling them, look, when I first came and preached this gospel to you in Corinth, the faith that transformed your life, that conversion that you were aware of, regenerating experience of the Holy Spirit, and it was an experience, like he said to the Galatians in chapter three. Something happened, do you remember it? Yes, we remember it, Paul. That was the message I preached to you, that the gospel changes lives. That the resurrection life of Jesus comes into a true believer. His point in those first two verses is you Corinthian believers are living evidence that this doctrine of the resurrection is true. It is the power of the resurrection in your life, procured by individual personal faith in that message, that has caused such a transforming change in all your experiences. So let me ask you this question, church. How is your experience of salvation? I'm not saying what do you believe, but what have you encountered of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Because doctrine alone will not save you. Jesus Christ alone will save you. The true sign that somebody is a believer and not just a religious clone is that the presence of the Holy Spirit resides within the heart and life of, an, of a believer in an experiential way. So how is your experience of salvation? If I was to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not gonna do for those who've experienced the risen Lord Jesus, their room would be full, I would imagine, of raised hands. Now, either that room would be full of delusional hypocrites or there's something going on here that's gone on throughout church history for the last 2,000 years. People have experienced Jesus risen from the dead. The church historian Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote in his book, The History of the Expansion of Christianity, these words. But for their profound belief, the early Christians that the crucified Jesus had risen from the dead and that they had seen him and taught with him, the death of Jesus, and even Jesus himself, would probably have been forgotten altogether. You see what I'm saying in this? Do you see what he's saying in this? It, it wasn't for the fact that their lives have been, if it wasn't for the fact that their lives have been totally and utterly transformed because they believed that they'd seen the risen Christ, Jesus would have been, would have been, get this, a forgotten martyr. Lost in history. A very learned man once said to a little girl who believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, my poor little girl, you don't know what you really believe, do you? There have been many Christs. Of which of them do you believe? The little girl replied in a simple childlike faith. I know the one in which I believe. I believe in the Christ who rose from the dead. There's only one of them. Now, a follower of Buddha wrote this, his leader. This is what he wrote about his leader. When Buddha died, 
It was with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains. This is how Buddha died. Ahsoka, another follower, one of the emperors of India, distributed after Buddha's death his ashes in minute proportions to 84,000 shrines all over the continent of India. And Buddhism as a religion still tonight centers all its worship on the ashes of its dead founder. Mohammed, and I have Muslim friends, so don't think I'm picking at world religions here, but we have to find the truth in life. Why is it when I'm with my Muslim friends, they get me as a Christian pastor to pray for their demonized Muslim friends, true, and to lay hands on them in their restaurant when they're struggling because they experience the presence of God? There is something experiential, that is a fact. People have seen it with me interacting with them. Why do they ask that? Because there's something of the risen Lord Jesus in the believer that they are attracted to. Muhammad, who we hear so much about today, died in Medina on the 8th of June, 632 AD at the age of 61. And his tomb every year is visited by tens upon tens of thousands of Muslims. But what they are coming to the tomb for, we might ask. They're coming to mourn the death of their leader, not to celebrate his resurrection. Yet the Church of Jesus Christ to this very year, not just every Easter Sunday like this, but every Sunday morning celebrates the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over sin, over death, over the grave and over hell. As one man put it well, Christianity begins where all the religions of the world end at death. And it starts with resurrection. Can anyone say hallelujah? Aren't you glad this morning that there's evidence? I hope you have that evidence in your experience. And if you haven't, you need to know that transforming experience, which is a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, that will conclusively prove to you above any argument, the experience of God silences an argument. There are many questions you'll have bubbling around your head if you don't yet know Jesus. The encounter with the risen Lord brings us to the place of rest. It's like the Apostle Paul, he would have been a high Premier League Jew and an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road took that Jewish man, transformed him and made him incredibly humble. And he changed the known world more than any other believer before or after him saved Jesus Christ, I believe. So this, we're talking about relationship, not religion. Second piece of evidence that Paul gives the church is in verses three to four. And it's about the Old Testament scriptures. For what I received, I passed to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, before we look at the scriptures that Paul is talking about, and we can only give that a cursory glance, I want you to look at the statement that I've just read to you. What I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Now, there's a lesson here. The gospel is of first importance in its foundation, and it must remain front and center for a church to stay in a flow with God. Anything that is not Christ-centric is eccentric. We've got to keep Jesus at the center. Now, can I pause for a moment to address parents and grandparents in the room? Here's a question. It sounds a bit Jewish because this is the way they operate. Do we pass on to our children what is most important? We may pass on a trade, and that's good. We may pass on to them an education. We may pass on to them a financial legacy, 
but do we pass on to them the gospel? I know we do it, but do we do it as the most important thing to pass on? Is that our priority? As a church, for example, I've got John on the front row, he would agree with me in this. Social action is very good. Helping the poor is God's will, particularly through our Storehouse charity in this church. But the Storehouse team would tell you the first case that without the gospel of Jesus Christ, it could not do what it did. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be centrally amongst all of the social action of the church, the motive, the engine, the reason why we do what we do to, to share the love of God. Secondly, can I ask those who preach amongst us, as many people who preach and teach in this room, and I'm asking myself this question too. In all the gospel messages that you've preached lately, how many times has the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ featured? See, the resurrection is the central aspect of the gospel. And when I read the New Testament, I find that the cross is not singled out on its own. Whenever the apostles preach the gospel, but whenever you find the cross, you find the resurrection very close behind. There was a lad gazing intently on a picture in an art store window. And that picture was displaying a notable portrait of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gentleman approached and stopped to stand by the little boy and look in as well. And the boy saw the man's interest and said, that's Jesus. There was no answer from the man. The lad continued, them's the Roman soldiers. After a moment of silence, the man said, Nothing. And the boy continued, they killed him. The man could hold his peace no longer. And he said, where did you learn that, lad? He said, I learned it in the mission Sunday school. The man began to turn and walk away thoughtfully. And he hadn't gone far before he was hearing the voice of that young boy saying again, say, mister, and quickly the little boy ran after him. Say, mister, he repeated. I, I wanted to tell you as well that he rose again. Now here's the question. Do we forget to tell them that he rose again? For without that, there is no gospel. You can have all the cross and all the blood you like, but if Jesus rots in the grave, we are damned and of people to be most pitied but praise God according to the scriptures in other words in fulfillment of those old testament prophecies Jesus did indeed rise from the dead we're going to do a very quick flyby for the sake of time the old testament very clearly states that Jesus the messiah or the messiah figure that we believe is Jesus now would be crucified buried and rise from the dead. In Leviticus, you see a picture of a lamb taking away the sins of the world. John the Baptist declared of Jesus, he was the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. Isaiah in chapter 53 and other places graphically illustrates how that Messiah figure would be butchered to be bruised in our place for our sins. There's loads of Old Testament scriptures that confirm this. But you might say, where does the Old Testament say about the resurrection? There were some scholars who say there's no Old Testament evidence for the resurrection. But I refer to Jesus in Matthew 12 where Jesus said, and they were asking him about the resurrection on the last day. Jesus signs 
signposts them to Jonah and says, as Jonah went into the belly of the fish and was in the depths of the bowels of that fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will also be. Jesus references the imagery of Jonah. Paul also in the Bible references, that is the Apostle Paul, the image of first fruits. This is a picture of the harvest that would be presented after Passover. Jesus in the plan of God, was crucified on Passover as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world to fulfill John's teaching. He was then raised on the Feast of first fruits as the first presentation of the harvest that would come from his death and resurrection. Jesus was a statement that as Christ was raised, so also will all those who believe be raised. Peter in Acts 2, quoting from Psalm 16, said that God would not leave his Holy One in corruption to rot, but would leave him in a place no more. He would raise him from the dead. He will not allow his Holy One to rot in the grave. There is a reference to resurrection there. In Hebrews, quoting Psalm 2, and Acts 13, quoting Psalm 2, it says, the Lord would give to the Son of Man the nations as his inheritance at his resurrection. All the way through, I could go all the way through the Old Testament, you'll find Jesus in every book. Every book of the 39 Old Testament books pointing to Jesus. And that's why Jesus, when he bumped into two people on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, said this to them. Can you hear his tender compassion and grace, by the way? Oh, fools. That's his opening gambit. And slow of heart to believe. What? What, 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 what were these slow of heart to believe? All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning where, Jesus? He said to the people on the Emmaus Road, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning them of himself. Jesus pointed to the Old Testament to say, this was already predicted. So why is he telling them that? to show them that this resurrection idea is not a new thing. This is something that Moses and all the prophets have foretold. This is something that was incomplete and utter fulfillment to God's will. Third piece of evidence. The eyewitnesses in verse 5 through to verse 10. And I'll read to you. It says that God showed himself alive after, actually this is Acts of the Apostles, chapter one and three, showed himself alive with many infallible fruit proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, when Luke wrote that, he used the phrase infallible proofs. You cannot disprove this based on what is presented. In fact, there is no wriggle room Dr. Luke, in his reference there of infallible Bruce, is saying there are eyewitnesses to this resurrection. Now, Sir Edward Clark, a lawyer, says this. As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of evidences for the events of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not, mere, not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. He doesn't put any show on, he doesn't need to. And the gospel evidence for the resurrection is of that class. As a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly 
as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. The historian Thomas Arnold wrote this, I have been used for many years, by the way, he was an Oxford University historian, many years to study history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us that Christ died and rose from the dead. And we hear in the repeating refrain of bright scholars who have expertise in these areas. We don't need their verification though. Paul tells us that the eyewitnesses, just in our little 11 verse passage, Paul tells us that there were eyewitnesses that saw it. That's a, a way to shoot yourself in the foot as somebody who's trying to preach the gospel. Name names. Name notable names. 500 plus names. Tell them it was them. That's a good way to kill a fake sect. I'm trapped. (laughs) I'm back. (laughs) The wire caught me. For the tape. I don't do tapes anymore. I was wrapped up in my wire. You don't need infallible proofs when you've got people being named by names in that verse. People could have gone down the road and knocked on the door and said, is this real? Is this for real? Did this actually happen? And you know, another example of that would be the women who went to the grave for the first time. Why would you put women in a gospel story when, according to Josephus, women had no validity in court? So they weren't used in that patriarchal society of first century AD as testimony because women were prone to to levity and temerity, was Josephus' work. They were not to be listened to. And yet, stupid gospel writer uses them as the first persons to say Jesus rose from the dead. Why would he do that if it didn't just happen? Paul goes on and signposts Peter, Were the 500 hallucinating that apparently saw him all at once? And then he talks about himself in humble language as one who was abnormally born, which is the Greek word for either an abortion or an unwanted, ill-timed pregnancy, or sometimes on occasion, um, somebody who was born prematurely. Paul is saying, all of these people I've listed are saying that Jesus rose from the dead. But I too was a serious player in the Jewish faith. And I was, I can tell you, I encountered Jesus. And we can see the humility of Paul in his writings because he should have been very proud. But he talks about being the least in the passage we've read because I persecuted the church. That's a transformation born of encounter where he said, look, I'm just a humble servant. I'm nothing. And he considered his curriculum vitae as filthy rags compared to knowing Jesus. Four, the conclusiveness of the message. Let's get on for the sake of time. Paul joins himself with the other apostles and all the believers in the reading we've just read at the beginning here about this glorious truth. And he states humbly, no matter who preaches it, 
they will be united in their testimony to the gospel and particularly peculiar the, the truth that Jesus lives. Now just imagine that at this point, Paul's readers would have been saying to themselves in their minds, yeah, but what are you trying to prove to us by saying this? We know Jesus rose from the dead. As I said to you before, it was that belief that they wouldn't. And this is where I want to land it today because this is the place where it really matters to you as an individual. You may not have heard that Thomas Jefferson, the great American statesman, was a rationalist. People who hear this message either online or now may be of that ilk. Western rationalism is this scientific mindset. I will only believe what I see, can see, touch, test. Observe in a laboratory. Spiritual experiences like rising from the dead and the healing the sick. I'm not open to that. That's magic. That's voodoo. Thomas Jefferson was of that ilk and he was a substantial person. So he decided to rewrite the Bible and make his own Bible. And he called it, um, let's find it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is how his new Bible is written. Because he had no belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He said, and this is how it ends his reading of the gospel according to Thomas Jefferson. They laid there, they, there they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone at the door of the sepulchre and departed. It's a bit miserable ending, isn't it? The end of the story, though, praise God, is not a sealed tomb, but, and here's for the hymn fans in the room, up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor over the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. If you were to enter life from a sealed tomb with a dying saviour, as Jefferson's writing proposed, you would enter a hopeless world. When the great Christian scientist, and I don't mean Christian scientist as in the cult, Christian scientist because he was a scientist, he was a Christian. So Michael Faraday, when he was dying, said this. Because they were asking him about speculations about life and death. Speculations, he said. I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer lives. And because he lives, I shall live also. And this is church where I want it to land for you today. If you switched off or got bored during any of this, it's possible, it's innate, it's possible. Please wake up now in Jesus' name and hear this because this is relevant to everybody. American clergyman Philip Brooks said this, let every man and woman Count themselves immortal. Let him catch the revelation of Jesus in his resurrection. Let him not say merely, Christ is risen, but I shall rise. Now we can criticize the Corinthians for believing that Jesus has again risen and that we will not rise again. We believe he rose again, don't we? But do we really believe that we will rise again? If you do, it should change the way you live because there's tremendous hope laced within that. Just like it transformed the early saints. Did you see the impact on those early saints? It meant they lived as pilgrims in this world as their master had modelled and they pressed into the priority of the kingdom. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom 
and his righteousness and all the things you need will be added to you. Let me close with a prayer. Well done for surviving the journey. I'm going to read this prayer to you. Our Father, we thank you that your Son was declared to be your Son by the resurrection from the dead. If he'd laid in the grave, we would have known he was not your Son. But we thank you, our Father, that you put your well done on Calvary by raising him from the dead. We know that Jesus is now at your right hand today, and we bow and adore and praise his glorious name. We say, hallelujah, Christ arose. But we also say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, we look for the day when we will rise as he has risen, and we'll be given perfect bodies on that day, and we shall see the Lord, and we, wonder of wonders, shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Lord, we will be perfect one day because of Christ's death and resurrection. And Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We praise his name and we pray that we will go with his blessing. And any that have not had the Christ of God entering into their hearts by his spirit in salvation, Father, I pray for them that the resurrection power that I spoke about today, that Charlie experienced in my office this week, would be unleashed in their being. To know that Jesus is Lord and he is risen from the dead. To his glory we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bless you. Thank you. We have Easter bakes. Don't maul people on the way out rushing to get the calories and the sugar it's been a long service but do go and enjoy some time downstairs if you're a visitor there are stairs there there are stairs there if the kids are still in their escape room which is why I did a longer one they don't worry about them they'll be released to you in time okay did you hear the ocean